Many of you may know the name Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer, just about, I guess maybe about a year ago, wrote a book entitled Christians in the Age of Outrage, How to Bring Our Best When the World is at Its Worst. Here's some things he said about the writing of that book and just the general climate in which we find ourselves today. Ed says, everywhere I looked, I saw anger, anger towards Christians. And he wrote this back, in, speaking of, his, of what he saw in, in 2017, is that not more true today? Anger towards Christians, anger by Christians, anger by Christians towards Christians. People whom I respected as voices of patience and forbearance were also being ignored or being sucked into the hostility. Everyone was intimately aware of how others were being angry towards them or their community, but shockingly ignorant of how they were displaying the same level of vitriol towards others. What I realized as I was researching and writing was that this was a discipleship problem. We are entering a new age, one defined by polarization and tribalism, amplified by new technology and online platforms. And as disorienting as this is for Christian leaders, this pales in comparison to those in the pew struggling to make sense of how to live, follow Christ, and witness. Too often, sermons and small group curriculums are leading Christians to engage a world that no longer exists. They're outdated. And as a result, Christians can frequently be the greatest sources of outrage rather than its counter. Let me read that again. Christians can frequently be the greatest sources of outrage rather than its counter. Outrage is all around, so we have to decide as the church how to walk through this. We're living in a day, and this indeed is indeed our moment, when we need to live like Christ as gospel Christians in the midst of shouting, anger, and hatred, but just know it's going to get worse. To be sure, there's a lot in this world that is outrage-inducing. Terrorism, sex trafficking, trafficking, and exploitation systemic racism, illegal immigration, child poverty, opioid addiction, and the list goes on. These issues deserve a measure of outrage and how they're being dealt with on various levels. They certainly deserve our anger, and that's part of the problem. What do we do when the anger becomes too much, when our righteous indignation at injustice morphs into something completely different? How do we know when righteous anger has made the turn into unbridled, sinful outrage? We live in an age of outrage. To many, this either leads us to raise the volume in our own anger or to shrink back in fear. Stetzer says, instead, I want to help Christians see outrage as the mission field to which God has called us. Outrage can produce fear and anger. But it can also bring opportunity if we are willing to, by faith, step out and bring the healing message of of Jesus to a broken and hurting world. As we continue this morning in our study of the book of Romans, although there is more biblical instruction, let me just say at the outset, that should be considered We're going to see this morning how Paul lays the foundation for our engagement with society. 
We continue to look at the book of Romans. We've, we've been uh, together for a long time in the book of Romans. I'm suspecting it's going to take us every bit of, of a full year to get through this book. We've been looking at Paul's letter to the church at Rome under this heading, the gospel of the righteousness of God. What's the letter about? It's about the gospel of the righteousness of God. It's about the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It's about the good news that holy God who demands absolute righteousness from anyone, you, me, or anyone on the planet who would be made right and have a right relationship with him, he demands absolute righteousness from us which we know to be a problem, amen? Because Romans says, all have sinned. And so we're immediately in trouble. But this same God that demands righteousness, the good news is that he has given the righteousness that he demands to us as a gift through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. And Jesus offers it all to you and me if we would simply trust him and receive it by faith. A few weeks back, we turned a major corner in the study of this book and in the, the, the flow of, of, of Paul's argument in, Romans, uh, in, in, in his letter to the Romans. When we looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2, you'll remember those verses there on the screen. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Eleven chapters worth, chapters 1 through 11, all about the mercies and grace and love and salvation of God, how to be made right with God. Paul then says, he turns on the dime and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by those mercies, the mercies of God, to respond to those mercies, the only logical way that that there is to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or could be translated their logical worship. It only makes sense. If God so loved you, Being a living sacrifice in gratitude to God is the only way to live. Do not, verse 2, be conformed to this world. Stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewal of your mind. How is your mind renewed? By the word of God, we know, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed so you can live out the the will of God that is so beautiful. And, and And we... took those two verses and summarized them this way. To daily live out the will of God according to the word of God for the glory of God is the only logical response to the gospel of God. If you've understood the good news that God gives what he demands through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you to, be, for you to receive as a gift, then the only way to respond to that is to look at God and say, God, I give you everything I am. You're worthy of all that I am. You're worthy of my worship, all of my worship, every breath I have, every move I ever make. It's only logical. And then what Paul begins to do in the rest of the book is break down exactly what the will of God is that we must live out in response to the gospel. We saw in Romans 12, verses 3 through 16, which we're not going to read, we saw in, in, in verses 3 through 16 of Romans 12, the priority of life in the local church. And in those verses, Paul underlined for us and basically spelled out, if you want to be a living sacrifice to God, the first thing that means is that it, it affects how you live in the body. It affects how you live in the church, among the people of God. After you give yourself individually to God, then you must give yourself corporately to the body to humbly give ourselves in sacrificial love and service to one another in the local church is the only logical response. 
to the gospel of God. After te- showing us what it means to be a living sacrifice in the church, he moved on in Romans 12, 17 to 21, last time we were together, to talk to us about enemy love, the shockingly logical mark of the church. You want to know what, what, what defines the church? You want to know what it is that makes the church stand out from all other uh, gatherings, communities of people. It's the fact that Christians love their enemies. Throughout church history, this has made us stand out as the body of Christ, as you would naturally assume it would. To humbly love not just one another in the body, but to humbly love our enemies by doing them good when they do us evil, that text 12, 17 to 21 teaches us, is the only logical response to the gospel of God. Now you say, how is that even logical? It's exactly what God did for you. For while we were still sinners, Scripture says while we were enemies of God, when we were making war against His holiness in our sin, what did God do? He said, oh, well, you want to be like that. Then I'll just stay up here in heaven. You just stay down there and we'll just, we'll just we'll forget it. Is that what He did? You, you, you've, you've, known, you've known the verse your whole life, but listen to the enemy love in John three sixteen. For God in this way loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And in the context, we learn the world he gave his son to are a bunch of condemned, sinful rebels against his holiness. And yet he loved his enemies. This morning we come to Romans 13, where Paul talks to us, I believe, based on my understanding of the chapter, Paul talks to us, throughout the whole chapter of Romans 13 about gospel-driven citizenship. So remember, he started in response to the mercies of God, give yourself to God. Crawl up on the altar of, 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 uh, to be a living sacrifice. Give all you are to God. Don't be, stop being uh, conformed to the world. Be transformed into his likeness by his word. Learn what his will is. And then he began to break it down. He says, now in the church, here's what a living sacrifice looks like. Then he said, now with your enemies, here's what a living sacrifice looks like. And by the way, in both cases, what is it? What's, the, what's our responsibility in both cases, in the church and with our enemies? Love. What do you reckon it's going to be in society? Y'all are quick studies. One guess. Don't miss it. Love. Gospel-driven citizenship. We're going to be looking at Romans 13, 1 through 14. Here's what I want you to take home. To live as humble and loving citizens and neighbors is the only logical response to the gospel of God. To behave in any other way as Christians in society does not make sense if you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is gospel-driven citizenship. What is the will of God for believers in our society that must be lived out in response to the gospel? How does the gospel affect our citizenship? Now, I said earlier, I'm just going to give you a little quick little caveat here. I said earlier, there is much more that needs to be considered than what we will have time for this morning, okay? So what that, what that statement and that little caveat's all about is this. Don't come to me after church and say, what about... 
okay? Because I'm just going to say, yes, that's what I told you you were going to ask me after church, okay? (laughs) And so there's a lot more we should talk about, we need to talk about, we may talk about here, or we may talk about on Wednesday nights when we we open this text back up uh, in our See for Yourself study. So just know we're not going to cover it all this morning, but to live as humble and loving citizens and neighbors is the only logical response to the gospel of God. So Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 14. First of all, as we look at verses 1 through 7, <clears throat> how do we do that? What does gospel citizenship, gospel-driven citizenship involve? What does it mean to live as humble and loving citizens and neighbors? That's the only logical response to the gospel. First of all, it means to be a law-abiding and respectful citizen in your given society. Paul wrote, key to remember this, Paul wrote into one of the most wicked empires to ever exist. So lest we think that this doesn't apply to the Babylon of America today, to the, to the wickedness of our own nation. It, it was written into, if it's possible, a, an even more wicked society and empire. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who comes, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must must be in subjection, not only, that is to the government, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Let's pause after verse 6. John Stott says of these verses, those who serve the state as legislators, civil servants, magistrates, police, social workers, or tax collectors are just as much ministers of God, though in a different way, as those who serve the church as pastors, teachers, evangelists, or administrators. They are appointed by God. Those positions are appointed by God. God. Verse 7 says, pay to all then what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It's what we hear in these verses, truth that we're to be law-abiding and respectful citizens in our society. If we want to live out a gospel-driven citizenship, then it begins there. Be law-abiding and respectful citizens in our society, realizing and recognizing the role of government in God's plan and rule over the earth. You'll remember at the end of Romans 12, when we were talking about loving our enemies there, what 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 did Paul exhort us to do? He said, do not, in essence, do not take revenge. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather leave room for the wrath of God. That's what he said, isn't it? 
So what that means is when somebody does you wrong and they're unjust and they, they hurt you, they're, they're, they, they treat you badly, Paul says you keep loving your enemy and you leave that justice to God. God will take care of it. Here in Romans 13, the thought is continuing. There is not a big disconnect between 12 and 13 here. There's a connection For in this passage, as we saw and we read just a few minutes ago in verse uh, verse 4, Paul says that government is one way that in time and history God executes his judgment. He's ordained human society in such a way that government, not you individually avenging yourself, but government is set up to bring vengeance for wrongs done against you in a court of law. It's really a beautiful system, isn't it? We don't get particularly excited about government, do we? Sometimes we don't think this way, but think of the beauty that God has arranged and the goodness of God in setting up human civilization and society so that good is, again, in large, big brushstrokes, generally speaking, dealt with. Now, there are societies, of course, that are just so far gone wicked that there's not even hardly any good at all that they do. But most societies, most governments, in the big broad brushstrokes of life, on the big issues, most societies agree that murder is wrong. People have to be punished if they kill other people, right? And we could go down the list of different things that are just common morality and, 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 and therefore law in various societies and, and countries. And so we should be thankful for God's goodness. Of course, as Stott also says, he cannot be taken here to mean that all the Caligulas, Herods, Neros, and Domitians of New Testament times and all the Hitlers... Stalin's, Amin's, and Saddam's of our times were personally appointed by God, that God is responsible for their behavior or that their authority is in no circumstances to be resisted. Paul means rather that all human authority is derived from God's authority so that we can say to rulers what Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power or authority over me if it were not given to you from above. And so even the most, the, the, the most unjust act of all of history, the most unjust sentence of all of history, when Pilate pronounced the death sentence on Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus said to Pilate? You only have authority to do that because my Father gave it to you. And in some way that maybe some of us can't, we will, all of us will never understand, God reigns sovereign over the crucifixion of Christ. Amen? If he he reigned over the crucifixion of Christ, if he was sovereign in that, if that was part of his plan, then hear me, there is no greater injustice that has ever happened or ever will happen. And therefore, there is nothing that is outside the sovereign hand and gracious love and care of our Almighty Father. Of course, Pilate misused his authority to condemn Jesus, Stock goes on. Nevertheless, the authority he used to do this had been delegated to him by God. The principle here in Romans 13 is clear. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. 
But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. As Peter and the other apostles put it to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. This is the strict meaning of civil disobedience, namely disobeying a particular human law because it is contrary to God's law. But what is clear in this passage is that is only the only time when government commands something God forbids or government commands something uh, forbids something God commands. Some biblical examples of this civil disobedience, you remember Exodus chapter 1. By the way, this helps us know how to pattern our, our thoughts on government and, and any type of civil disobedience. Exodus 1, you'll remember there, before the birth of Moses, it was because of the Hebrew midwives' civil disobedience that Moses lived. Because Pharaoh had said, because how, of how fast they were multiplying, uh, the Jews were just, I mean, <laughs> they were fruitful. They multiplied, just like God said. And because of that, Pharaoh kind of started getting nervous. He said, so here's the deal. Hebrew midwives, when y'all are birthing babies for, your, your, for, for the Hebrew women, kill the boys. Government ordered infanticide. Kill the boys. Let the girls live, it's fine. Kill the boys. Well, the Hebrew midwives couldn't do that. Why? Because God values life. Psalm 139 says that we're knit together in our mother's womb. And if you're, if, if you're not even, if you're not, if you're, if you're not, even half asleep this morning, you're seeing a parallel to modern day, amen? With the millions of babies that have been put to death. Let me tell you something. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a place to stand as believers in the cause of life. Hear me. From the womb clear through to the tomb. All life. Not just abortion. But the treatment of humanity. People created in the image of God if they're teenagers, adults, or the elderly, whatever it is along the spectrum, we are to treat them as we would be treated. And in them, respect and honor the image of God, even when we don't agree. Daniel 3 is another example. Sample. Daniel and his friends, you'll, you'll know them by the, by the names from, from uh, children's Sunday school of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their names given to them there in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. They refused to obey Nebuchadnezzar's order to worship the image of himself that he had erected in order to be worshipped. They were supposed to bow down at certain times. When, 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 when the call came, they were to bow down and worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar. They wouldn't do it. Moreover, Daniel and his friends w- wouldn't quit praying to their God. And so they rightfully honored Yahweh over the man, Nebuchadnezzar. We referred to it earlier, as, as Stott, Stott referred to it in a quote I shared earlier, Acts 4, 19 and 20, Peter and John were arrested by the Jewish authorities. They were told they must quit preaching the gospel. Stop telling people about Jesus. Don't tell your friends at school about Jesus. Don't tell your co-workers at the office about Jesus. Don't walk across the street and tell your neighbors about Jesus. Stop it. 
They told the Jewish authorities they must listen to God and not man and that they could not, I quote, they could not but speak of what we've seen and heard. You see, if you've heard and understood the news about Jesus, the good news, that holy God who demands perfect righteousness has given you that righteousness through life, death, and resurrection of his son, you cannot help but tell. And you're commanded by the one who died for you to tell. And he's a bigger king than any president that will ever rule these United States. Any dictator that's ever ruled anywhere. He says, tell the news. Don't be so selfish as to remain silent. Don't love yourself by keeping yourself safe and not telling. Love that person you know who doesn't know Jesus, whose soul is destined for an everlasting hell. Love them enough to tell them about Jesus, even if it costs you your own life. And in many places in this world today, hear me, your brothers and sisters die because they tell somebody else about Jesus. And yet, you and I, me first, and I, and, 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 uh, I'm assuming you're like me, we can't even get up the gumption to mention Jesus with somebody that won't slap us, spit on us. They might cuss us, but that'd be about as far as it went. And so these are some examples of civil disobedience. But, hear me, we just went to other places to see that. None of that's in Romans 13, is it? You didn't see any of that in Romans 13, did you? Because Paul is giving this big overarching picture. Again, how do you live as living sacrifices to God? The only logical response to the gospel in the church, you love one another. You serve one another. How do you live in response to God as living sacrifices in, uh, amongst your enemies? You love your enemies. You serve even them. And here Paul is giving this big overarching answer. How do you love people? How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you live as living sacrifices in society? You love. You love. And what that means first is that you respect and recognize the role of government. Short of circumstances is what we've seen in, in, from these other places in Scripture. We are to be law, a law-abiding and respectful citizen in our society. Jeremiah 29, verse 7, there Jeremiah, God through the prophet, is speaking to his people who are in exile in Babylon. And he tells them, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Godless people. Awful people, the Babylonians. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. If, if God commanded that in the Old Testament, certainly now as we bear the good news of the gospel that can save even the most wicked, does it not make sense that we pray for our city? Does it not make sense that we, that we pray to the Lord for its behalf, for its welfare, and that we engage and become part of the solution? Be a law-abiding and respectful citizen in our society. Secondly, we must be a loving neighbor for the good of others and for the glory of God in our society, verses 8 through 10. Catch this. Paul has just said in verse 7, this is, this is an important connection, pay to all what is owed. And then he lists the different ways we owe people in society. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor. 
were to pay up on all those things in society. We shouldn't have anything lacking. We ought to be all paid up in terms of our taxes, our, our, our revenue, whatever we owe someone, our respect, our honor to the governing authorities. But then in verse 8, Paul says, owe no one anything. In other words, be all paid up. Don't leave any debts outstanding in society except to love each other, which you're always going to have and which is a continuing, ongoing debt and payment. Amen? For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You want to fulfill the law of God? I mean, we're talking about being good citizens. Paul says, here's the deal. Don't owe anybody anything except love. Now, does this, let me just pause and, and, and deal with this quickly. Does this mean you can't have debt? I don't think that's what's being taught in this particular context. What he's saying is pay all the debts that he just listed in verse 7. Be all paid up in society. Can I just say that based on Proverbs, it's a bad idea to have debt. It's a good idea to get out of debt. Because in Proverbs it says the borrower is servant to the lender. You enslave yourself to another person when that happens. So with that being said, I don't think that's being taught here, but good idea. No, what's being said here is don't owe anybody anything in society except love. And when you love another, you fulfill the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Think about it. How many of you would want to be, would want, would want to have someone commit adultery against you? Anybody? Any takers on that? How, how about, how about somebody coveting your stuff to the point that they stole from you? Anybody? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when we don't do those things to others, we are loving them as we would love ourselves. You see how it works? Verse 10 puts it really clearly when it says love does no wrong to a neighbor. Wrong defined by God. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So let's think about this practically. Can, can you imagine how the climate of our society might be affected if Christians refused to shout and condemn the other side and instead sought to serve and love those with whom we disagree as we would like to be served and loved. What impact would that have? What difference would that make? You know, you, you do realize we can still stand for God's truth as we are being loving and respectful and reasonable. Is it, is, it, is it safe to just say there's a lack of reasonableness in our world? Be the change you want to see. Not only can we, you see, we must behave this way no matter if those who oppose us never do because this is the only logical way for people who understand the gospel of Christ to live. If we want to be living sacrifices to God, then part of that is that we must live in society a gospel-driven citizenship by being a loving neighbor for the good of others and the glory of God in our society. Now, 
that means, that includes being loving and humble as we stand on behalf of the sanctity of life from the womb to the tomb. The church has messed that up on on many different points, haven't they? Not in what they were saying, but how they said it. Not in the conviction they held, but in how they held it. And how is what Romans 13 is talking about. They were not loving. They were not reasonable. They were not humble. Nowhere did the grace of God in Christ given to them and, their, and, and intended to be passed on even to those that, oppose, that they oppose, whose, whose, truth, whose reality they don't agree with, whose perspectives they, they disagree with. That gospel is nowhere to be found. Being a loving neighbor for the good of others and the glory of God in our society, certainly it includes a stand for life. It includes worshiping God. If they say we can't worship God, it it, it involves being a, a bold witness even when maybe it's not politically correct or socially acceptable. But how we do all of those things matters. And maybe our world would be more moved by our stand on the truth if there were less, if they heard it, if if they, if they, if they heard it not through protest, but through tears. Not through shouts, but through compassion and acts of love. Even as we speak the truth clearly and firmly and stand on the word. You see, we must be a loving neighbor for the good of others and the glory of God in our society. But thirdly and finally this morning, if we're to live out a gospel-driven citizenry, we must be awake and practically dressed in Jesus' holiness as we anticipate his soon return. Now, your Bibles probably have different headings for verses 8 through 10, verses 11 through 14, which leads you to believe, as you glance at that, that all this stuff's disconnected. Those are not inspired headings, by the way. You know that, right? When they do that bold type between verses, that's not, that wasn't in the original deal. That's not part of God's word to us. It's an it's a, it's a editor's comment. And it's generally a good summary of what follows, but sometimes it makes us disconnect paragraphs. Don't let it do that here. As I've already shown the connection between seven, 1 through 7 and 8 through 10, listen to the first two words of verse 11 to see the connection back for verses 11 to 14. Besides this, in other words, what I'm fixing to tell you, Paul says, is a further reason to love your neighbor, verses 8 through 10, and part of what it means to do good for society and glorify God in your society as good citizens. Besides this, besides owing nothing to anybody but love and loving other people, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Hallelujah. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. You know the time. Do you know the time? I'm not asking what time it is right now. Do you know the time that we're in? Do you know that the hour has come for you, the church, you as believers, to be to wake from sleep? You're like, Chad, you don't know my schedule. I never get to sleep. Yeah, I know. 
I'm old and I just don't sleep. I'm jealous of my whole family. They can all sleep through a storm. And the least little thing and I wake up. I'm not talking about that, right? I believe in the church in America. We have been lulled and entertained and distracted to sleep. And hear me, it's a damning sleep. And there are those who say, Lord, Lord, who will never enter his presence. He will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they've slept in entertainment and convenience and comfort and pleasure to death. Jesus is on their lips, but their heart is far from him. And oh God, help that not to be me. God, please keep anyone in this room from that being them. The hour has come for us to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. Isn't that awesome? Just a couple weeks ago for Noah. Just a couple weeks ago for Avery. But, but Noah and Avery, the, the, it, your salvation's closer than it's ever been. It's closer than it was when you first believed. For, for those of us who trusted Jesus a long, long time ago, our salvation, the culmination of it all, the marriage supper of the Lamb, our, 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 our everlasting oneness in the presence of God is closer than it was. Do you, do you wake up and thank God that, that you're a day closer? Are, are, are y'all with me? This is important. Because you can't do the other stuff if you don't get this last point right. You follow me? You're not going to relate to the government and other people right unless you're thinking right about time and the hour and the coming of Jesus soon. He says the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let me see if I can illustrate what he's trying to communicate to us here. Friday morning, last morning in Colorado, I got up early. I drove up to about 12,000 feet, Loveland Pass, the Continental Divide, just before sunrise. And there's a picture. So, can y'all, can y'all see that well enough to tell the sun's not up yet, but it's coming up, right? Y'all see, it, it hadn't crested yet. I, I drove up there to watch the sunrise over the Continental Divide. I got there early. I sat for maybe 45 minutes because, by the way, it takes a long time for the sun to come up at 12,000 feet. You can see it coming and the whole sky's lit up, but it just, it's, it's got to get up there, right? And so there I sit, just waiting for the sun to peep over the ridge, ridge line at Loveland Pass. It was the dawn of a new day. I knew that the full light of day was coming. And I was ready for that moment, phone, camera in hand, when all around would be enlightened and warmed by the sun's appearing. And guess what? It happened. The sun rose at 12,000 feet over the Continental Divide at Loveland Pass. It matters if it's dawn or if it's dusk, doesn't it? If the sun is about to rise or if it's about to set, it matters in our lives, doesn't it? I'm just talking about the the physical sun right now. Are y'all tracking? It matters. 
If it's dusk and you're standing at the Continental Divide, you need a flashlight. But if it's dawn, you're fixing to be blinded by the sunrise. You're fixing to be warm. You probably need a jacket at sunset. It's not sunset today in your life, Christian friend. It's dawn. It's those moments just before he comes. Just before he crests the continental divide and shines. In this case, all across Arapahoe Basin. For all believers, never forget. Don't let a day go by that you don't remember. It is dawn. The Son of God has risen. And soon as we sing, Joe, and very soon, Jesus will return to bring the full light of everlasting day in the new heavens and the new earth. Some of our uh, journal groups, we've been reading this stuff, haven't we, guys, in Revelation 20, 21, 22? Oh, it's just been awesome. And by the way, I'm out there at the Continental Divide reading this stuff, seeing the beauty of God and reading about the new heavens and the new earth, and I'm just thinking, come! Sorry. Jesus will return soon and very soon to bring the full light of everlasting day in the new heavens and the new earth where we'll inhabit, the scriptures tell us, the new Jerusalem forever with our Father and Jesus our Savior as the only light we need for us to see the glory of God forever and ever and ever. That's the hour you live in. That's the time of today. Which is why Paul continues and says, So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is that? We'll talk about it in a second. Here's what it'll look like if you've done that. If you put off works of darkness, put on the armor of light real practically. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. What does that mean? Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. By the way, if those first two pairs, if you were like, check, check, the third one might get you. Right? Especially in this age of outrage. Hello? Y'all all right? Can I just talk to you? Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on, second time he said put on, The Lord Jesus Christ. What's the armor of light? According to Paul, it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So what's Paul saying? Paul is telling us here. In verses 11 to 14, we're to be awake and practically dressed in Jesus' holiness as we anticipate his soon return. Because this is the hour in which we live, it's dawn, the sun's about to crest, he's about to split the eastern sky and come. Because that's where we live, we are to be holy. We're to be awake to the time and his soon coming and practically dressed in Jesus' holiness and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. It's true that we are already clothed in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But think of Paul's instruction this way here in verse 14. When you're dressed up in a tuxedo or a formal gown, you walk different, don't you? Your behavior is limited by what you're wearing, right? 
Ask me how I know. Well, we just married my boy off a couple weeks ago. And they put me in a monkey suit. You know, they dress you up. They suit you up. and nothing, I mean, the shoot, nothing's comfortable. I'm glad they look good, but that's it. I mean, but you're in that stuff. I mean, you can't, you can't play football in that stuff. You can't, you, can't, you, can't, you, know, you can't play some pitch in that stuff. You can't. I mean, there's just limits. And depending on where they got the pants right, and Cliff did, by the way, you might have a problem squatting or moving around in certain, certain ways, right? You're limited by how you're dressed. Paul's saying, live like you're clothed with Christ himself. You are. He's given you all, all of his righteousness, but, but live like you're clothed to Christ because you are. Live like the one who justified you freely by his grace and gave you his very own righteousness. Live like he lived. And Jesus perfectly loved God with all his heart, soul, and strength, and he perfectly loved his neighbor all of them, from believers to society and with enemies in between, as he loved himself. Why? Because he's coming back soon. Soon. You got your camera ready? Are you in position at that great, time-eternity divide to see the rising of the sun and not miss it? Be holy in love so that the world can see His glory and so that you are ready for the full light of eternity to shine on you when Jesus splits the eastern sky and comes to take to usher us into the everlasting joy. Imagine it of His immediate and personal, face-to-face, forever presence. Be awake and practically dressed in Jesus' holiness as you anticipate His soon return. You see, if we're to live a gospel-driven citizenship, we must live as humble and loving citizens and neighbors because it's the only logical response to the gospel God. This is gospel-driven citizenship. Is it how you behave in society? If not, Paul says, the only way to be synced up with the gospel of Jesus is to live this way. Let's pray.